Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 33 of the Avocado Games Cast, the Avocado's Gaming Podcast. Today, we're going to be looking at something that's in a lot of games. You might even say most games. Combat. Specifically, combat in role-playing games, which can be some of the most complex combat in video games. Well, my name's Merv, and joining me, we have our resident Fire Emblem aficionado, Lord Stoneheart. Hello. The Thursday Game Start creator, Singing Breakman. Hello, glad to be here. And finally, he considers Juicero an affront to his people. It's Pulp Robot. Hi. So, how are you guys all doing? Fantastic. <laughs> glad to hear I'm, it. Uh, and are you I'm guys doing, doing well. like, less than fantastic? Because we don't allow that here. We only allow <laughs> fantastic. Uh, I need to leave then. Well, sometimes you don't feel so great, but then podcasting makes you feel a lot better. Uh, speaking of things that make you feel better, video games. Which video games have you guys been playing lately? Stoneheart, what, what have you been playing? Uh, so I've been playing uh, uh, Pillars of Eternity um, on its hardest difficulty setting uh, called uh, Path of the Damned. Uh, that's been a source of fun and frustration. I and can imagine. That, <laughs> that weird mix of both. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've only ever played, like, maybe I got, I think, 20 hours into the game. Um, it already had pretty ridiculous difficulty spikes, even on, like, its easiest setting. How, how much harder is it on the hardest? So I've... Um, I've been once on the normal difficulty setting, I believe, and the uh, so the difference the difference between each difficulty setting is mostly in the number of uh, the number of enemies that spawn, oh, except wow. for Path of the Damned, where they all um it has I think it has the same number of enemies as hard mode, but uh, they all have better stats. And you wouldn't expect the uh, you wouldn't expect the the same way of scaling difficulty in Doom to be in Pillars of Eternity, eh? Just uh, multiplying the enemy numbers. Oh, that's how Doom does it. Yes, oh. yeah. Oh, neat. Um, yeah, it's an interesting way to scale difficulty because usually you think you just make these people well bullet sponges, or in this case, magic sponges. Uh, but I, you wouldn't think you know. Let's just put twenty more enemies on the field and see what happens. So that's an interesting yeah. approach. And what I've noticed is sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes what we uh, have a lot of trouble uh, trouble with is uh, sometimes the new enemy uh, when uh, the new enemies that weren't there on the lower difficulty level, uh, they're like a in addition to being just having their stats uh, uh, stats like buff, uh, buffed up, they also have like um, new uh, new types. Uh, like uh, like in one of the first dungeons, uh, I remember running into uh, these like walking rat monsters called scolders, I think. Yeah. And uh, and the ones uh, what pop- were popping up uh, this time were like scolder kings, uh, which yeah, that was a that was a fun hour I spent trying to kill one uh one spawn of enemies. Uh, <laughs> So essentially, like everything turns into a boss battle, uh, that that level. Uh, yeah, sorry, you were saying. 
yeah, but, uh, uh, it's still, um, I, I guess the unevenness, the unevenness and the difficulty becomes a little more apparent because there are uh, there's still quite a few, um, there's some mobs that I have little trouble with, and then there will be a random battle that just kicks my ass. Man, that's a drag. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're into it, if you like, you know, challenging yourself and punishing yourself, it sounds like a good time. Um, me, I'm less of a, a masochist when it comes to gaming. I prefer, <laughs> you know, just smooth sailing, beat up twenty thugs with one punch, that kind of thing. Um, Pulp Robot, what have you been playing? Uh, I'm still playing through Witcher Three, which I've been doing for like three months now. Because that game is long. How many hours have you sunk into it so far? Like 60. Oh, I'm not, wow. I'm not even very far into story. I just do what I do in all open world games. Go, what's in that direction? And wander <laughs> off. Yeah, I've been having... I'm playing a, like a couple of open worldish games right now. And I'm experiencing the same sentiments. Where I just get sidetracked like mad. Uh, so... How are you? How are you finding The Witcher Three? Uh, fun, but dark. It is a dark idea behind it. Like the entire game, you're just like, "This isn't going to be happy ever, is it?" <laughs> yeah, that that seems like the the CD Projekt Red approach. They don't make very happy games. I think every. Yeah, that's... Oh, sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think I've every side quest has ended with somebody dying. Just. Yeah, it's just like uh, just like the Flash. Everybody dies in that show, and then comes back to life. Um, although I think this is considerably less lighthearted. And uh, maybe you'll get into this later, but how are you finding the combat? Considering what we're going to talk about uh, later on this episode. Complicated. <laughs> that's that's one way of putting it. Um, I, I've. Is it more like tactical oriented or action oriented? I've actually played a Witcher game, so it's hard for me to, to gauge. It keeps making me feel it's more feels like I should be playing it more tactically than I am, but I'm just like it's a hack and slash. Nope, no, it's not. I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of how I felt with um, with a couple of games, like most recently uh, near Automata, where I just you know went in kind of. Uh, kind of swords blazing and I realized there was all this other stuff that I could be doing that would make my life easier so sometimes you know finding finding the right combination of tactics is, is important um, anything else you want to mention about The Witcher 3? I kind of planned on talking about it a little bit later so alright so we'll save some of the, some of the uh, discussion of its combat systems for later in the podcast Breakman, what have you been up to? I have been uh, playing the finally released Dragon Quest Builders on the Switch. I'm sort of late to the party on that since I know it came out on, I want to say, PlayStation 4 last year, maybe? Yeah, we can look this up right now. because we have, Oh, there you go. Yeah, uh, we have Wikipedia at our fingertips. So, <laughs> Dragon Quest Builders. What did it come out on? It came out on... PlayStation 3, PlayStation, but only in Japan. Oh, and the West okay. came out on PS4 and Vita. 
And that was oh, last year. Hmm. In October. Poor Vita. <laughs> so I wasn't last year. It was 2016. Okay. Wow. Oh, shucks. I keep forgetting right. that. It's 2018 now. Yeah, I keep forgetting it's 2018 now. I'm still not used <laughs> to it. Yeah, and it just came out for the Switch. Although, for some weird reason, it hasn't yet come out on the Switch in Japan. Oh, how about that? Yeah, not until March 1st. So that's release dates for you. I know, super exciting, guys. Um, yeah. Well, I, yeah. Won't, I won't spoil any of the details for our Japanese listeners. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll, they'll understand exactly what we're talking about. Um, actually, a lot of them do know English very well, so that was a very stupid thing to say. It's anyway, <laughs> um, Breakman, how, how is uh, Dragon Quest Builders treating you? You know, it's a hoot. It's, um, it's a, a very sort of relaxing type of game, you know? Um, it's, it's sort of ironic to bring it up during a podcast dedicated to combat systems, because for an RPG, its combat system is probably the least developed aspect of it. Um, instead, it, it is primarily focused around a sort of Minecraft-esque uh, set of building mechanics. You actually can only level up by building your city. Okay, so defeating enemies just gets you loot. Exactly. They're sort of a means to an end. That's a really interesting approach that you don't normally see um, in, in these kinds of games. There's some games like, uh, I'm playing Yakuza Kiwami right now, and you level up not just through combat, but also through just like eating food gives you experience points, or completing... <laughs> Mini games gives you experience points, even though it has nothing to do with the main story half the time. So I like games that just dole out experience for doing stuff. Um, so how, what exactly is the setup here? Is it kind of Minecrafty, survivally, or what exactly are you doing here? Yeah, that's an apt way to describe it. Um, I never actually, you know, would you believe I have never played Minecraft? Uh, so I'm I'm really the odd man. Hold on, <laughs> yeah. Um, I gather that it's quite similar to that, but more uh, more goal-oriented. So uh, much like other open-world RPGs, you're given uh, side quests as well as a main quest. And the main quest is to rebuild uh, a society that's been, uh, that's been shattered. So you're building a city, uh, you're, you're building specific rooms, uh, so your, your residents can cook food, and then new folks come to town. It, uh, it really takes that kind of community building aspect that, that's relegated to a side quest in a lot of games and puts it front and center. Yeah, like normally you think um, in RPGs, especially they have like these little city building mini games or, or kind of side quests sometimes, but they're really not the main focus. Exactly. Um, yeah, like I'm playing Xenoblade Chronicles 2 right now and one of the things... Uh, that you do in that game is you kind of develop the cities you visit, but it's relegated to a very small part of the game that has nothing really to do with, um, with the main quest. Although it sort of feeds back into it by giving you better resources, the more you invest in, in a, a city. Yeah. It's really interesting to juxtapose those two since, um, there's a lot of similarities between them really with the, the city building aspects and the, uh, I guess more in Xenoblade, the, the larger uh, society building aspects. You yeah. know, I, I wish you had more control over 
maybe how it how it led to development. I remember in Xenoblade Chronicles X, there could be actually new structures built as a result of you helping out in the uh, the community building. And I don't think that's replicated in the newest uh, newest iteration of that series. To my knowledge, it isn't. You really don't leave an imprint on the world, uh, but it's yeah. also telling a very different kind of story. It's not like, say, Dragon Age Inquisition, where sometimes you can affect uh, the landscape a bit by doing certain actions or asking people to build certain bridges, etc. Uh, so maybe that's the better point of comparison, actually. Something like Dragon mm-hmm. Age Inquisition. Um, yeah, so I guess I should mention what I've been playing. And I like briefly mentioned a bunch of games, but one game that I haven't mentioned is uh, A Case of Distrust, which just came out, I think, earlier this week. Uh, we're recording this on February 18th, so earlier this week. Uh, for the PC, and it's one of them, one of them narrative adventure games that people love to debate about so much. Uh, this one is kind of more styled, and it has these very striking kind of. Um, I don't know how to explain the style exactly. Very striking kind of silhouette type images that it uses to to tell the story. There's not like a quote-unquote walking simulator where you walk around the environment and explore. It's very much a point-and-click adventure type game, but very, very narrative-driven. So, it's unique. I love the aesthetic. Um, I love the color scheme. I love sort of the whole way it looks. Writing, I think it's a little bit weaker, but I'm only like a quarter of the way in, so maybe things will turn around. Uh, Have you guys heard of this game? No. No. Yeah, yeah, I've never heard this, but it, it looks gorgeous. I'm looking at stills from it now. It's really beautiful, huh? Yeah, it's a beautiful game. It's not super engaging to play, and sometimes the puzzle logic is a little bit bizarre. You basically just go through every option until something happens. <laughs> um, which is why I say the writing's not as strong as it should be. But I think it has such a strong sense of uh, aesthetically what it wants to be that I think it's worth experiencing. Like, maybe get it for half off at some point in the future. I think uh, you'll get a kick out of it. So that's what we've been playing. Um, So let's move on now to the main topic of discussion for this episode, which I mentioned in the intro, is RPG combat. Uh, And the reason we want to talk about this is because we haven't really talked about... We haven't really done an episode on combat yet, 33 episodes in. And combat isn't basically every video game. I know people are going to say, well, I played Roller Coaster Tycoon the other day and I didn't kill anybody. Um, first of all, if you're playing Roller Coaster Tycoon without killing anybody, you're playing it wrong. Um, <laughs> secondly, uh, sure, yeah, there's so many video games that don't have combat, but there are so many that do. It's like, I usually say like half of video games involve killing something or harming something in some capacity. So... That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about combat. And specifically because, you know, talking about combat in general would give us, you know, an eight-hour podcast, which we're not going to do again after this winter's podcast. Um, We're just going to restrict our our attention to the RPG genre uh, because role-playing games have some of the most complex and intricate and interesting combat to discuss in video games. So let's just kick this off by talking about some of our favorite combat systems in RPGs and what they do well and what's unique and interesting about them. 
Uh, are there any combat system? Are there any RPGs that you guys want to mention that like a really neat combat system? Um. So, uh, so I think uh, uh, um, thinking about what makes uh, uh, an interesting combat system in uh, <coughs> side. Um, and one uh, one of my favorites is uh, 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 the Bravely Default series. Oh yeah, yeah. I've heard of this. Um, because essentially it takes uh, um, it takes your basic uh, turn-based RPG where at the beginning of the turn you decide what each uh, what each character is going to do and then uh, it plays out according to speed stats and such. Uh, but then the twi- uh, uh, the twist is, is that there's another um, uh, there's another sort of uh, uh, stat called uh, um, brave points where every um, Everyone starts with zero, and your basic action take up one, and uh, take one point, and you get a point back at the end of each turn. Um, but then, what you can, um, what you can do to change things around is that you can either decide to brave, where you, um, where you do another action um, by using up another point. or you can decide to default, which is sort of like, uh, which is sort of like a defend. Uh, a defend action that also uh, that doesn't use up a uh, that doesn't use up a point. So the next turn you'll have one extra point. Okay, so you can kind of bank them for use later. Yeah, to, to an extent. Um, it max uh, um, without a special ability. It maxes out at three, and you can't uh, you can't brave more than three times in one turn. And you can't go below negative. Uh, you can't go below negative four in a deficit. Okay. And do you have to pay back the deficit at the by the end of of combat, or how exactly does it control for so if you um deficits? So if you have a uh, so if, let's say um let's say you breathe three times in with a basic attack. Uh, at the end of that turn, you'll be at negative. Uh, uh, you'll be at negative four, and so the um. So the next turn, uh, everyone, um, everyone gets a point. That character will be at negative three. Uh, and essentially what happens is that character can't act again until their, um, until their brave points goes back to zero. Okay, so it's, it's kind of like, like when you overdrive um, or like you dash in, in a, an action game and then you get fatigued and then you need to, yeah. to recover. Okay. It's an interesting system, and I, I take it the Brave and Default system is where it gets its name from, or the game gets its name from. Uh, yeah, and so the uh, and the, also the um, that's where the title comes from, and I, I guess what they were going for they um, they meant to have like a double meaning with uh, with the system being one of the meanings, and the other I think it's supposed to sound like natural uh, naturally courageous uh, naturally courageous. Okay, but it comes out as courageously natural. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, so it's not, not not the best translation, but also might have been what they're going for with um, a little bit more old school, not the best, um, not the best thing. Well, uh, English translation with the title. Yeah, I think that's almost kind of an aesthetic now to have weird names in English that don't make any sense. <laughs> I, I'm actually kind of kind of on board with that. Uh, like the upcoming code vein, what does that even mean, right? 
I keep hoping they don't change the name of Project Octopath Traveler, which is about as inscrutable as it gets, eh? Yeah, or um, the other one that's the other one that has projected it, Grand Blue Fantasy Project Relink. <laughs> you oh. got to keep that name, right? Uh, speaking of combat systems, the combat in that game looks sick, and I want that game right now. Although it hasn't even been announced for the West, so you know, it is what it is. Uh, any other combat systems you guys want to mention that are that are really cool? I'm going to toss out something that I hope doesn't. Uh, you know, maybe we'll address it more later on. Uh, you know, it, it could lead down quite a, a tangential path. But Final Fantasy Tactics, okay, uh, strikes. Yeah. That's a very effective uh, combat system. It, it it ties in so well both to the themes of the game, this sort of grand chess-like uh, storyline, while also giving the minute-to-minute -minute, uh, combat sort of a heft. You know, each each movement that you make, you know, will have consequences and uh, and so forth. And I'm not sure if it was the first of that genre uh i guess if it's kind of similar to fire emblem that may have preceded it oh. by quite a bit uh but it's it it laid such a foundation that it's hard to think of any tactical role-playing games that came after it without looking to it as the uh the the popularizer 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 oh, i think yeah popularizer I, you um, know, i'm gonna copyright that so uh, does it oh, oh. sorry lois Ronald, go ahead I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, um, I just want to add. Uh, uh, Final Fantasy Tactics uh, um, is sort of a uh, sort of a spiritual successor to a game called uh, uh, called Tactics o uh, Tactics Ogre. Oh yeah, uh, I've heard of that. That that's with uh, it has a very similar combat system. So yeah. So um, when you say that, like the tactical RPG. Um, like uh, modern tactical RPGs sort of had their DNA uh, traced back to Final Fantasy Tactics. Would you see it in games like XCOM and Valkyria Chronicles, or even Mario Plus Rabbids? Are those sure. are those the kinds of games that uh, that uh, that are drawing from Final Fantasy Tactics? Yeah, you know, I tend to think of um, what is it like Disgaea, all of those Nipponichi uh, titles, what okay, were the other yeah. like Lapusel, Phantom Brave, all of those, uh, but. Moving further down the line, you're absolutely right. Um, XCOM certainly has that that sense. Valkyria Chronicles as well, to maybe a lesser degree. It's it's an interesting kind of hybridization there of the the tactical combat style with a uh, an almost more standard turn based combat of uh, of your sort of your more average Japanese role playing game. Okay. Yeah, I've never actually played a Valkyria game, um, so I don't really know if that's the right comparison to be making. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem like it's been an influential one for sure. Uh, so what? So beyond the combat kind of being, uh, or the combat system being very related to, I guess you mentioned the themes and narrative of, of the game, what else about it makes it special? Um, I think it delivers on the promise of some some earlier combat systems. Your sort of Final Fantasy II, where um, and and I should say the original Final Fantasy II, rather than the uh, the one with Cecil and the rest. 
Um, it, it delivers on the promise of a combat system where using a particular item or set of skills or uh, a class type, since your characters in Final Fantasy Tactics choose a job, more or less, uh, where using using a skill, item, or class actually helps you develop develop those skills to then be used to greater degree in the future. Okay, so it's the kind of thing that works well for a game of this nature, but say in Skyrim leads to you just running around and jumping on everything to build your agility. That's a, that is a great contrast. That's a good point. Um, it, it can be taken to... Uh, ludicrous ends to say the least uh but a little bit of it goes a long way yeah so it kind of it's almost like when when they get the balance right it's almost like the game adapts to your play style if that makes yes. any sense yeah so that's something yeah. uh i i kind of seek in games that games that figure out what i'm doing and then kind of twist themselves around that uh so a couple of, of combat systems I want to mention that I think are, are neat, but not necessarily unique. Um, first one is, you know, your standard JRPG combat, but uh, two games I think have mastered it really well, which are the Persona series and the Digimon Story series. And both those games have you know, your standard turn-based combat with your simple rock, paper, scissors kind of elemental setup. But... The way Persona manages it is really nice because um, they've uh, they they make exploiting ele- uh, elemental weaknesses a huge part of it. So what you're trying to do is trying to figure out what an, what a, an enemy's weakness is and then exploit it. Or in some cases, the problem is you'll have enemies with different elemental affinities on the on the battlefield and then you have to figure out in what order you're going to take them down. So it kind of adds this neat puzzle aspect to the game. Um, and also you're also playing the long game, right? So you have to think, how do I manage my, my resources, my, my hit points and my SP um, so that down the line, I, I still have enough resources left for a more difficult battle. And uh, Digimon story is a similar setup, although it's not as uh attuned to to exploiting weaknesses and strengths. Uh, instead, the way they add complexity is by adding these two layers of rock, paper, scissors. So you have the elemental rock, paper, scissors, and then you also have uh, what they call the type rock, paper, scissors. So in, uh, in Digimon, most Digimon have an attribute, which is your standard element, and they have a type, which is vaccine, virus, and data. So these two layers of rock, paper, scissors kind of interact and um, there the strategy comes from how do you build a team that balances these two rock, paper, scissors games at the same time. So I've, I've been enjoying both of those a lot. Um, any now, other com- – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to, um, to, to talk about the, uh, the Persona example for a moment actually because that's, that really is one of your more interesting kind of classical JRPG combat system. The, uh, the sort of turn-based back and forth. Um, one of the things that always strikes me as one of its weak points, uh, and and that sort of, it, it can get in the way of me appreciating Persona games quite as much as I'd like to, is that uh, occasionally it goes down the road of whatever the opposite of your kind of rubber band mechanics are. That if an enemy 
is able to exploit the weak point of one or more of your characters, it can end up uh, kind of spiraling in on itself. That once you've started to lose, it's very difficult to recover from that. Because if memory serves, and you know, I'm speaking from having played, I think only Persona Three, and uh, what's yeah. that one on the Wii U? Shin Megami Tensei or uh, Tokyo Mirage Session? <laughs> yeah. There it is. You know, it 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 sometimes. Once you've begun to lose, you uh, the enemy keeps racking up turns and so forth. Yeah, that's that could be problematic. Um, Persona Four rectifies that a little bit by giving you party control, full party control, whereas Persona Three everybody's AI controlled except for your own party member, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah, you're right. And uh, the way Persona Five addresses that is uh, sorry before before I go on. Uh, in Tokyo Mirage Sessions, do you have full party control or just control over one dude? I think you do have full party control, but the party is only three characters. And you okay. can fight teams of enemies that have more than three. Okay, yeah, that, that that's a little unfair. <laughs> Persona 5, the way it rectifies that is much the same way as Persona 4. And on top of that, it gives you a wider range of healing items to deal with status effects like that. So knockdowns and getting put to sleep and getting confused and things like that. And a lot of, and your, your, uh, characters, personas specifically in that game have, uh, have abilities that can reverse some of these status effects. So it's built around that a little bit more, but it, it can get annoying for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like they adapted to plug some of the holes in their system. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, for what I've heard, Tokyo Mirage Sessions is a little bit, more a little bit more old school, I guess, in its approach than the more recent Persona games. Um, it's a game I'd really like to try at some point, but you know, not every Wii U game is on the Switch, so <laughs> maybe someday. Maybe someday <laughs> the game that sold like five copies will get a Switch port. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pulp Robot, are there any interesting RPG systems you want to mention? Uh, I kind of think we should mention like one of the original like things that kind of changed JRPGs. Chrono Trigger's fight battle system. Yeah. It oh, okay. Took, it's a little before it, my time, but yeah. It took Final Fantasy's active time battle, and they went, what if our teammates could work together in moves and use that? And you can kind of see that actually have become more and more common with the idea of your team is not just four, four, three or four people standing there taking turns. They'll work together. Tweedakin ended up using it a lot better, but Chrono Trigger is really good at going, hey, if you switch up your party, you can do cooler things. Yeah, that's... When you're when you're fighting, like, these team-based JRPGs, um, when you're fighting through them, usually you have... Usually your, your teammates are kind of entities acting independently. So to have people team up and do, like, team attacks, which are now common in in JRPGs, like, um, to take this to, to take this sort of a little bit further, you have the baton pass mechanic in Persona 5, where after exploiting a weakness, you can pass your turn to, um, to a teammate who can exploit another weakness, or going all the way out, you have, um, whatchamacallit, the, the combat system from, uh, Tales of Hysteria, where you literally merge with your companion. And an attack, which I think is kind of neat. 
I also think it does the... In old school JRPGs, I was really bad at this, is you find, like, the characters you like, and that's your team. You don't use the other ones unless the game goes, hey, you have to use this person in this dungeon. By going, hey, everybody gets different abilities, they go, switch up your teams. Let's see what you can do. Figure this out. Yeah, I actually I actually appreciate that um, that approach where you, where you have to use... Um, where you... I don't want to say have to use, like you want to use the different teammates, right? So say, I don't know, you're going through a swamp and there are a lot of frog, evil frogs around. Then, you know, you want to pull out your frog killer to, <laughs> you know, take them on. Um, let's not kill too many frogs. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about JRPGs and there's one sort of Western RPG system that I wanted to mention. And this might be stretching things a little bit because some people might call this in a quote-unquote immersive sim and not a real RPG, but I don't think genre boundaries are uh, are that rigid. So I wanted to, to mention the Deus Ex game, specifically Human Revolution and Mankind Divided, because um, we've been talking a lot about these turn-based or, or cooldown-based kind of combat systems, uh, but they're also really good real-time combat systems in RPGs, and Deus Ex gets it right by essentially taking the mechanics, like, essentially taking first-person shooter and just adding stuff to it. So, yes, it's played in first-person. Yes, you can pull out a gun and shoot somebody in the face, and it's basically like an FPS. Um, But you can also use a whole range of abilities, like cloaking or combat abilities that you know cause explosions or you can you know you can stealth your way around enemies you can sneak up from behind and and take them out uh you can snipe them from afar so when you create something super versatile and create all these different ways to approach combat encounters i think you end up with something um with something really engaging that you know really adapts to the way the player wants to to play and this is something that I think the first Deus Ex kind of got right, but it was a little janky. Second Deus Ex, less said about it, the better. It's something that Human Revolution and Mankind Divided both do really well. Yeah. Uh, so, oh yeah, and it still has you know your standard level up and put points and, and different abilities kind of mechanics. So, as far as I'm concerned, it's a real RPG. So, deal with it, haters. <laughs> Have you played... Uh... Any of the the recent Fallout games, uh, three New Vegas or oh four? <laughs> yeah, I've played like half an hour of three at a friend's place, and I've and I've beaten New Vegas. Okay, how do you feel? Maybe uh, the the Fallout, what is it? The VATS system, that sort of real time or turn based system, compares and contrasts with uh, Deus Ex. Um. I, I, I'm not really the right person to ask about this because I don't have a super high opinion of the Fallout games. Yeah, I don't mind the truth be told. I mean, like, let me put it this way. I think I've heard that Fallout 4 sort of resolved this, but 3 and New Vegas have the problem where the shooting mechanics are just so bad outside of, outside of VATS that you just have to use VATS. It's not like this extra ability that makes things, um, you know, it's not like an extra ability that you use because it 
it can save your bacon or what have you. It's something you just go into every mildly difficult combat encounter using. It's like your own. It's the only tool in your arsenal that works at all, and that's why I find um, I find the approach that it uses like Vats exists out of necessity, not because yeah. they've you know made added this extra tool into the game. Um, as a tool, I think it's really neat, but like I said, it exists because it has to, not because it, it's actually a, uh, it's actually something that you'd want to necessarily use if you didn't have the option yeah Yeah, it's like uh, oh go on i was gonna ask what do you guys think of of the whole fallout approach i i don't actually um i don't actually have enough experience with other um other first person shooter games to um to uh, really compare it to so i i end up using um i end up using that for that uh but (laughs) Um, never, uh, I never assumed that uh, the shooting was significantly worse than other games, uh, but I, I guess I can see that. Yeah, um, it's like it, it was. I, I know I'm not the only person who thinks this because one of the things that that was kind of a selling point for Fallout Four was now you can shoot properly, <laughs> um, which yeah, definitely wasn't in the it definitely wasn't in New Vegas. I can tell you that much. Um. Yeah, so that's is actually an interesting way to kind of, like as Breakman mentioned, to integrate um, kind of the, the turn-based and and the real-time feels of of different genres of, of games. Um, my understanding is that that's was kind of put in there as a nod to the original Fallout games that were top-down and, and the combat was entirely turn-based. Um, I don't know if you guys play, ever played like the original Fallout One, Fallout Two. Yeah, I have a couple hours. Yeah, so it, it, how's the combat in, the, in those games compared to the more recent Fallout games? It's uh, it's much more in the style of like a Baldur's Gate, uh, Divinity, Pillars of Eternity. That sort of um, that uh, that isometric top-down Western computer RPG from the nineteen nineties. Yeah. Um, I mean, all those, like, Divinity is very different though, from, say, Pillars. Pillars is, is real-time with pausing, right? And Divinity's all yeah. turn-based. Oh, good point. I forgot Divinity was turn-based. Yeah, it's, so, it's much more yeah, in the okay. style of Pillars of Eternity. Okay, so it's, it's real-time oh. with pausing. Uh, I, I, um, uh, I'd actually characterize it as uh, much more in the style of, uh, of Divinity <laughs> because it's, uh, the original Fallout's uh, completely turn-based and not real time. Oh, okay. I do not know what I'm talking about. It's been so long since <laughs> since I played that. Must have been like 1998 or something. Yeah, I think I played. Um, I think I played like an hour of Fallout Tactics, which I can't remember if that's real time or, or turn based. But I've never played the, the first two Fallout games. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of like Divinity, where you just go back and forth. Yeah, so like each, um, I, I I've only played a few hours of like Divinity Original Sin and a few hours of Fallout, but uh, it's like a character has a turn and they have a set number of action points, and each each action they can do takes up a certain number of uh, certain number of points, um, and so once uh, and 
either they can either decide to use up all of the points or use up a certain amount and then move on to the um, end of turn, uh, so to speak. Um, and it just goes one by uh, one by one. Each character in combat has some sort of initiative value. And oh, neat! So it's kind of like you know what game used a, used a very similar combat system recently. Um, Kingdom, not Kingdom of Loathing, West of Loathing, uses a similar system where you can basically keep taking your turn until you run out of points, and then it goes to the enemy. Oh, cool! Yeah. So, Breakman, I think I might have discovered the source of your confusion. Fallout 1 and 2 are entirely turn-based. Fallout Tactics has kind of real-time-ish elements. That is almost certainly the source of my confusion, because I think I played more Fallout Tactics than Fallout 2. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's just to clarify for our listeners what the, what the distinction is. Um, so we've talked a lot about um, about combat systems we like. Uh, what what kind of features do you guys look for in in combat systems that you think make make for you know either an interesting experience or a, a smoother experience that you enjoy uh, a little better? I personally like combat systems. I get more that start off pretty basic, but get way more complicated by the end of the game. So starts off with just your basic attack, and by the end of the game, you're doing cool stuff. Yeah, like you're doing loop-de-loops and pirouettes and all that. Yeah, um, if it's installed really nicely so you don't realize you're actually just developing these, so you then go back and go, wait, I wasn't doing this the entire game. Damn. You know what game? Uh, there are a couple of games I want to mention uh, in that vein. So one game where it's super apparent that this is what's happening is, is Nier Automata. And mild spoilers for Nier Automata here. This is a game that you do sort of multiple playthroughs on. So your first time through, like when you're playing the basic enemies right at the beginning, you have all these very, you know, you haven't gotten like the super cool weapons yet. So your combos are, are very basic and you don't have that many abilities unlocked. So, and you're not used to, to how to fight yet. So, like basically, you're just kind of button mashing your way through and hoping you don't die. And then the second time you play through the beginning, uh, suddenly now you have all of these abilities you didn't have before, and you're just like dancing. You're dancing through the enemies like like a, like a ballet dancer almost. And it's it's uni- it's really cool to see that you've actually got the progression. It's kind of like you know when you play on New Game Plus mode, right? You actually yeah. see that you've added all these things that you didn't have before. Um, the other game I want to mention that does this is Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which is uh, notorious for having an extremely complicated system for combat, but you wouldn't, you don't feel that way as you're playing it. Because um, when you start, it's just you. You have no teammates on the field with you, and you have one companion character, and that's it. So you have like one familiar, I guess you could say. They're called blades in this game. So it's you and one familiar, and that's it. That's all you do. In fact, um, you don't. When you start the game, you don't even have the familiar. It's literally just you. And then you add the familiar, and then you add T 
teammates and then your teammates get more familiars and then you get more familiars. So by the end, you effectively have like 10 people that you can switch between on the go in addition to a whole bunch of different combo possibilities. You're managing cooldowns for two different types of combos. You're managing uh, elemental affinities, which are changing sometimes because enemies can change their elemental weaknesses on in on the go, which yeah. is kind of hilarious. Um, so you're managing like a dozen different things, and it all works together super intuitively. But this is 50 hours into the game, right? So like it's not until, say, hour 30 or 40 of the game that you have the entire combat system at your disposal. The game eases you into it really slowly. Um, and it actually ends up working out pretty well because now you're now I'm doing super complicated things that if I had just been presented with right at the beginning of the game, I would have bounced off it super hard. But because you know they build it up bit by bit, you can have this the game can support this ultra complicated battle system. Yeah, Xenoblade Chronicles Two is is easily one of the best battle systems I've encountered. Not even just in an RPG, but in any genre in recent memory, just because of how well introduced it is. I mean, I remember seeing promotional material before the game came out and having half a mind to not even pick it up because it seemed so overly complicated. And we'll get around to this when we talk, you know, maybe about what we what we don't like too much. But it seemed so overly complicated on the face of it that I thought this you know, I'm going to, to be doing homework to play this game. It's it's going to, to feel like work to make it through this storyline. But the, the the way that they introduce it, you know, bit by bit, building, uh, you know, hour after hour, let's say, for the first 15 hours or so, just a mechanic here, a mechanic there. And by the time you get uh, 20 hours into the game, you just, it feels so intuitive. You feel like you've mastered it without even really trying to. Yeah, like, there's one kind of combo that they don't even introduce until, like, 20 hours in. Yeah. And which is, like, it seems like a really strange approach to take, but they they sort of also integrate it with the plot, so you get new abilities as the plot develops. Um, so there's kind of an in-game reason for why you don't have all the abilities right at the beginning, which um, I think they've done a really good job of that. Um but you're, you're like, you're, my understanding is that you're like near the end of the game. Right? Yeah, I actually just finished it uh, about a week and a half ago. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. I, I'm still only maybe halfway through, so I don't know if I get more abilities later. I think I'm on chapter six or seven. Yeah, so. hilariously, they, they actually still keep adding them towards the end of the game. Uh, quite frankly, the, the last couple you get are kind of superfluous to the experience. But uh, you learn all you need to know, really, uh, within the first fifteen hours. Yeah, so it's it's a um, it's a really neat way to that they've implemented to teach players exactly how to play their game. Um, I mean, I wish the game's other systems were as <laughs> friendly and approachable as uh, as the combat turned out to be. But yeah, it's um, they've definitely. They definitely fine-tuned this to a way that um, that I was really surprised to, to discover. Yeah, it, it actually makes for kind of an interesting point of comparison with something like the Mario and Luigi series, uh, where uh, mechanics are introduced and, and mini-games are introduced and so forth constantly during those games. 
but not quite as intuitively. It, it sort of feels like you hit a wall and then you hit another wall and uh, these turn into sort of walls of text, as it were, um, kind of over-tutorializing the game and making it very difficult to just keep moving along, whereas Xenoblade, it, it feels more like you're you're learning it at your own pace. Right. It feels like it's almost like uh, like an online course, which sounds <laughs> yeah like a ridiculous comparison to make, but yeah, it's something that that um, that I think uh, other RPGs should take their cues from. Uh, which probably won't happen because it didn't have the warmest critical reception. I think critical reception to that game has been like all over the map. It really it's, has. Yeah, some people just hated it. Um, some people really, really adored it. And a lot of people kind of dismiss it as quote-unquote anime bullshit, which <laughs> uh, we could talk another time about why that's a problematic way to talk about games. Uh, but suffice it to say, I don't think that's a particular insightful thing to say about it. Um, so I wanted to mention like a couple of things that I, that I find really, um, that I, that really appeal to me about video, about, uh, combat systems. And one of the ones I wanted to mention, and I think we've talked about this a little bit earlier was, uh, in regards to Deus Ex and, and, uh, Human Revolution and Mankind Divided, which is versatility. I like, I like when combat encounters have multiple approaches that work. Um, there are a lot of games where, like especially RPGs, have this problem where they'll present you with a boss, and there's literally only one way to take down this boss, and it's some obscure mechanic that was in, buried in a tutorial 10 hours ago that you didn't pay attention to, and now um, you go to play the boss, and you hit a wall, and then you go ask for help online, and then... Um, you, there are two kinds of people. One, one kind of person says, get good scrub. And uh, the other kind of person that says, well, if you paid attention like a good person, like I did, 10 hours ago in the tutorial in the swamp dungeon, then you would have known exactly what mechanic to use. And then you want to strangle both of those kinds of people uh, and the game itself. That's something I don't like. <laughs> right? Yeah, when... No. Um, yeah, when there's just only kind of one strategy that works and you have to, like, essentially it becomes this game of trial and error trying to find the one optimal strategy, I don't really like that in RPGs. I like when there are th three or four ways that work and you just have to strategize properly. I don't know, um, do you guys like the puzzle aspect of trying to figure out the right way to do something or do you prefer versatility? Because I think, I think the former is valid. It's just not something that I really latch on to what do you guys think i sort of i i like the um i sort of like the uh puzzle way of uh, approaching sometimes uh but there is uh there's definitely times when it can when it, if it goes to the extreme of well we taught we taught you this one tactic and you haven't had to use it for 10 hours <laughs> but or there's also other times when it's uh um, other times that frustrates me where you have a, like, this is one of those things where I have a specific example in my mind, but the, like, I'm not sure how to describe the general case. But uh, um, so, uh, so um, one game I played, uh, Final Fantasy III for, uh, for the DS, uh, which uh, is not Final Fantasy VI, but uh, um, 
you get so the into, actual Final Fantasy three. Yeah, it's the actual Final Fantasy three. Um, you get in. Um, you get uh, this one class called like the Scholar class, and uh, it's um, it, the Scholar class has the ability to uh, um, the ability to sort of uh, figure out the um, figure out the resistances and weaknesses. Uh, but then they don't get a lot else. So sometime after, uh, sometime after you get that, um, sometime after you get that class, you have to fight a boss who is able to change his elemental weakness on a whim, um, which is always fun. Um, and so, <laughs> um, what it ends up being is you have, uh, you have like a, this whole class that's specifically intended for one boss battle. And then afterwards, you will change, like, whatever character you gave that class to, uh, you'll change them out of it, and then you will never use that class again. Good heavens. So basically, <laughs> it's just like a one-time use thing? But it's, you could, like, you could keep on, you could keep on using it if you want to, um, and maybe there might be situations where it kind of helps, but, like, it's generally agreed upon that class is one of the weaker ones. So it's just this one thing that you have to use one time and never again. It's like, it's like a, it's like a condom almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A battle okay. condom. Battle condom. Um, battle condoms is probably some anime that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Googling that. Yeah. I, I, I'm a little tempted. We'll, we'll Google it for the link dump guys. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I don't. Yeah, I I can see why what, what you're mentioning would be, uh, would be a frustration. And I'm trying to think if there are other examples, because uh, it does seem like there should be a general case for this. I've actually, uh, I think. Sorry, I think I've got a, a good example of this being taken to some unfortunate extremes. Okay, go ahead. Uh, the most recent couple of games in the Paper Mario series. Uh, yeah, those I heard those both... have been great. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm a big color splash booster. Uh, you know, 2016 was not a great year for games, but, uh, or or for many other things. But the uh, color splash that came out that year was just fantastic in virtually every way except for its battle system. That, it it, it took as a guiding principle the idea that players would hit a boss be unable to move forward in any way without figuring out the one item that they could find somewhere in the game world that would render that boss beatable. Uh, and it was really kind of doubling down on something that had appeared in the preceding title, uh, Sticker Star. But it's it's kind of mystifying that such a game would, would be created and then repeated in the, the next entry given how unsuccessful it is as a design style. Yeah, is it... And do you use that item, like, ever again at all? You can. Just for being that one boss. Yeah, that's the one way that Color Splash does improve a bit on its predecessor, is that the item can be used again, and there's usually some engaging, flashy animation that plays. Um, it's, It's more that it's required to move past a boss, but can be used elsewhere as opposed to something that is not used anywhere except for on that one boss. Yeah, I feel like... Um, how do I put this? I feel like 
that kind of approach where there's sort of it's it's kind of integrating a, a bunch of sins together, right? The mm-hmm. boss that you can't beat the first time you you meet them because you don't have the right item. The only one strategy to defeat a certain boss, and on top of that, the item that you don't really use anywhere else. Like when you integrate all three of those sins together, it just becomes super frustrating for yeah. the player. So yeah, I mean. It is what it is, but it it can be really, really irritating for sure. Um, so yeah, we're, we're mentioning combat features that we either like or don't like, and sort of let me let me mention sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, I tend to like RPG systems that uh, where the combat integrates well with other aspects. So, for example, in Persona games, you have social links or confidants that grant you combat abilities, um, which is is neat because it um, it sort of integrates side stories into the strategy of the game. So whom you want to hang out with determines what kind of combat strategies you're going to use down the line, which I think is really neat. Um, another game I want to mention, and again, this might be more along the lines of an immersive sim than what some people might consider an RPG, but in the recent Prey game that came out last year, um, the crafting system is super well integrated with the combat. So basically what you do is you explore, you get resources off the enemies you defeat, and those resources you can use to build other items. Um, and pretty much anything in the game you can pick up and put in your inventory, you can turn into raw materials. So you get raw materials from enemies, you get raw materials from from uh, objects you find in the game, you render them all down to the raw materials, which you then um, build up into uh, into resources like like first aid kits or um, things that replenish your what essentially your mana in that game. And so, it does create this really nice um, gameplay loop of is that fight, a, exploit, and is that similar to how Monster Hunter works? Possibly, I've never played a Monster Hunter game. Yeah, I haven't either. <laughs> but that is uh, have either you guys, Pulp or, or Stoneheart, you played a Monster Hunter game? Oh uh, no, nope. Ah shucks, I figured somebody here would have. <laughs> yeah, because that Monster Hunter World, I think it's called the the, the recent one that just came out. Yeah, yeah, lots cool. of people are playing that. Um, that one's unique in that it's basically every encounter is a boss battle, and moreover. You get to design your own cat. Yeah, what an odd feature. I actually have now that I thought about it. I played the first 10 minutes of uh, the PS Vita, not Vita, PSP version of Monster Hunter and could not make heads or tails of it and dropped that quickly. Sounds like you are the resident Monster Hunter expert on this call then. Yeah. Well, that ain't going to go well. <laughs> so what you can tell us about Monster Hunter is that it's confusing and inscrutable. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, so I do like both those both those features. And the sort of the flip side of that, the flip side to Prey, is um, when you're when a game is paired with a really bad loot system, like everybody cites the original Mass Effect. I don't think the original Mass Effect was that bad, but basically you just got you just end up drowning in, in guns and armor that you never need. And then yeah. just sell everything off to the quartermaster. Um, the other games that are like this are 
Bethesda games where you just accumulate a whole bunch of useless crap. And I'm including Fallout New Vegas in this, by the way. Uh, you go through the game, you just accumulate a whole bunch of useless crap, and then you realize, wait, I have to sell this off, otherwise I'll become encumbered. And, uh, yeah, it's not into very well. The loot system isn't great. You don't get stuff you really need off enemies. You get stuff that you should sell for cash, and then you have to go find the stuff you, you want. It's not a terribly well-made system, in my opinion. The yeah, that may hard. be the like single biggest pet peeve of mine with uh, with combat systems. And you do encounter it quite a bit in uh, like open-world Western RPGs is really where it's kind of dialed up to 11. Yeah. Um, for some reason, the Dragon Age games aren't as bad for this, and I don't know why. Yeah, you're right. Like, um, yes, Stoneheart, what were you saying? I just uh, want to go back a little bit with... Uh... So, um, I, and with, being, uh, with the loot system, I, um, well, the thing that frustrated me most about uh, most about Mass Effect was simply the fact that uh, uh, you automatic, automatically picked up everything, uh, which there's only a minor complaint because you just sell everything, really. Uh, yeah. But uh, um, with, uh, with uh, I, I, I think, did uh, the to publish a prey game? Um, because with Fall 4, uh, um, they were sort of, uh, they sort of came up, uh, they, what they introduced in Fallout 4 was uh, um, the miscellaneous junk that, for the most part, you wouldn't really pick up, or you would pick up for, um, uh, because it was part of some like, obscure recipe for some weapon. Um, they, uh, they made the system so that, essentially, um, each, uh, each random thing that you picked up could, um, had like, a certain number of like, components. Uh, that you could break down, uh, you could break down into crafting. Like uh, if, um, like if you pick up a glass, like you'll have X number of glass components. Um, okay. You in crafting, you can um, uh, in crafting, you can then um, sort of uh, break those things down to make a new upgrade for your weapon, or um, or make an upgrade for your armor and such. Um, but it still the reason why I think I think it still ran into the problem is uh, essentially you were it, it felt like I was encouraged to like try to pick up this junk, um, and then I would um, whenever I wanted to make something I always felt like I was just missing like one component or I just didn't really have the perks for for yeah. stuff and. Oh, so you, you need certain certain skills in order to be able to craft? Well, to craft the, uh, to craft the best stuff, you need to have certain, uh, certain perks you can pick on level up. Ah, uh, that's really annoying. It's that irritating. would drive me nuts. <laughs> yeah, so you're, you asked if, if Prey was published by Bethesda. It was, uh, but it wasn't an internally developed game. It was developed by Arcane Studios. Ah, okay. So... It's possible that, um, I mean, Prey did come out after Fallout 4, so it's possible they were inspired by some something they saw in Fallout 4. Um, but I think it's just two two developers that came to the same similar ideas independently, uh, because Prey didn't come out. Fallout 4 was 2016, right? Late 2016. Uh, 2015, like November 2015. 2015. Okay, yeah. So then. Uh, then it's possible that they looked at ah, well, Fallout no, 4 and then we had uh, the people who did Prey implemented it. Yeah, it's it's possible then. 
I was, I was confused as to when Fallout 4 came out. Prey was, um, I think, May 2017. So, yeah. There's time then. Um, yeah, that's that, that can be really annoying when you need certain perks to craft basically anything useful. That really bugs me. Uh, like, if you want... I, I make fun of games with, quote-unquote, crafting a lot because I find it tedious, generally. I think if you want me to craft things, then you have to make it as seamless and painless as possible. Because otherwise, I'm just... Otherwise, I'm just not going to craft. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Like, crafting can be a good way of introducing versatility into your game. Like, if you have a bunch of different recipes and using this, like similar subsets of raw ingredients, you can make a whole bunch of different things. Then I think crafting is worthwhile to put into your game because you're favoring that kind of versatility uh, for the player. But if you're not, if you're going to make it painful to craft or introduce, you know, stat checks for crafting or, you know, make it mandatory to, to find these really obscure or difficult to find ingredients, you know, I'm not going to craft that. So. Yeah, I think uh, Bethesda in particular really struggles with this. And mercifully, I do feel like they've made it kind of optional in their games, which is nice. It's not like, um, and it's funny, The Witcher came up earlier. It's its system of collecting ingredients and preparing for battles via crafting is part of why I couldn't get into it. But um, but Bethesda, at least, does make it so optional that it can be ignored, which is what I've done in those games. On the other hand, that does introduce the problem of not really having your systems very well integrated with the game overall, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like we were mentioning earlier. Vats feels like it was introduced to solve a problem that didn't need to be there in the first place. Yeah. Um, and the same thing like this, They've. it seems like they've... Um, if you've made crafting optional, essentially, it feels like... It feels like you've solved a problem that you didn't need to create. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Bethesda games need to sort of take a hard look at... Um, like, what sort of holistic experience should they want the player to have when you put on, when you integrate the combat and the role playing and the conversations and the looting and the sneaking and all that? When you put it all together, what experience do you want the player to have? And if the answer is, well, we want the player to be able to sort of pick and choose what they do, then maybe you maybe you make a Bethesda game the way they make it. But if you want them to, if you want to engender, you know, a specific experience for the player, then maybe you need to think a little bit harder about how the systems are integrated. Um, and I don't really know what their philosophy is. So maybe they're, they're happy with it as is. I, yeah. I think the, uh, the philosophy is much, much more geared towards, uh, uh, towards the former there, um, uh, which, um, so that, yeah. Um, uh, so, um, so they're they're much more trying to go for like I think picking uh, pick and choose, and and so it feels like there's uh, a lot of options. Um, uh, but there's also uh, it runs into the flaw of uh, and it's a uh, criticism of Skyrim that I, I I do see a lot. Um, so I um I don't mind it too much, but it is uh it is a game where the gameplay itself is sort of shallow. Um. Yeah, I can 
I can, can definitely you can see that. You can pick up the basics very quickly. Um, but uh, it's not... Uh, and so, and it's, uh, uh, it's very quick, easy to pick up the basics, but then uh, there's not a whole lot of meat to master, so to speak. Yeah, it's, it's easy to learn without the difficult-to-master component. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's kind of why I've bounced off Bethesda games. And I, I understand people really, really enjoy them because they really like that, that player freedom. I just think I want a little bit more of a directed experience that allows me to feel like I'm actually not only making progress through the storyline, but also kind of improving as a player and you know getting a better handle in the combat. And not just, I have a bigger gun now and it does more damage. Yeah. Uh, but that's just how I kind of approach these, these games. Um, any other f- sort of combat flaws you guys want to mention? Witcher 3's entire combat system. Oh, wow. <laughs> Gauntlet Throne. Yeah. We're going to get shit for this. <laughs> oh, no. I'll get it. I'll, I'll take it. I do, do not care for the combat. I like everything else about the game. I do not care for that combat at all. They, it's overly complicated in the beginning. And either I missed a tutorial or they just didn't explain anything. I spent my entire t- first few hours going, I don't know what's going on. I know I have to use a certain sword on certain things and another sword on other things. Other than that, what's going on here? There are little tutorials like, here's how it works. And they're like, oh, by the way, you need to learn to craft potions. And you need to learn what, sorry? Craft potions and oils and elixirs and all this stuff to help you actually do things. Yeah, that sounds like not so much fun. Um, so my understanding, it's kind of like a hack and slash combat is that is that the setup they have yeah a little bit but it's also like they want you to be more tactical while doing it too so they're like here's how it guard and if you guard at the right time by the way here's a werewolf you don't have any idea how it's going to attack learn to parry really quickly you're like well i died twice i don't know what i'm doing yeah i've heard it's also a really hard game yeah like needlessly hard sometimes um but that's I, I, I don't know. I've never played a Witcher game, so I wouldn't be able to tell you. So, oh. w- the complication for you is not that it's um, is not you know the actual. I, I need to hit and I need to parry and I need to guard or whatever. It's that the game doesn't explain it to you very well. Is that it? Pretty much. Like, there's a tutorial. I'm not going to say there isn't. There was, and I played it, but it was like, this is how this works, and then. Okay, we aren't going to ever have a reminder, and we just threw the entire combat system at you in two minutes. Have fun trying to remember this two weeks down the road when you have time to actually play. Okay, so it's the opposite of Xenoblade, where it just throws everything at you at once and then says, here, have fun, go mad. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I can see why that would be super frustrating. So it might not even be that the combat system itself is, is bad. It might actually be very deep and fun to play, but if you don't know how to engage with it, then... What's the point, right? Yeah, there's these guys that run around with shields, and all I do is I learn how to use the fire magic, and I just spend my time waiting to reuse it because it's the only way I know how to hurt them. That is just not fun to me. Just burn, burn, burn. Okay, we can move on. I mean, I do enjoy setting people on fire, so that does sound <laughs> kind of fun. It's not... Do they like run around? Do they like run around clutching their butts like like idiots on fire? 
Uh, that'd be fun. Every now and then they will set on fire and they kind of just like pat themselves off, but a lot of times they're just like, ooh, As I'm you do. Yeah, it's just, you know, getting set on fire, it's a regular occurrence. Um, I do like that sometimes in, in Dragon Age games, if you set somebody on fire at the right time, um, they can, and then you trigger a cutscene, they would continue to be on fire during the cutscene. So you'd just be like talking to somebody who's on fire. That is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, good old, I think it was built on the Infinity Engine or the Eclipse Engine. I'm not entirely sure, but it's built on an old engine where you could do crazy stuff like that. Good old Dragon Age, eh? Um, by oh, the way, if you're... Sorry, oh, go ahead. It's going to, uh, to to pipe up just as a, a word of support for the Witcher 3 uh, combat system. And I say this as somebody who in no way likes the Witcher 3 combat system, so take it with a grain of salt. But um, one thing that I, I did really appreciate about it is that it is very tied into the the storyline and the themes of the game, uh, particularly for fighting boss enemies in it. There's this element of needing to research them and prepare yourself accordingly and not being able to fight them, you know, on, on kind of a, a simple human scale, but rather needing to, to gear up with specific items that they're weak to and that sort of thing. And it's so in keeping with foregrounding the character of Geralt as this expert in the field of, of hunting monsters in a world where nobody else is able to or a few other people are able to uh, it's I respect it more than I enjoy experiencing it I think it's just dreadful to play through uh, but I do think it's a pretty neat example of a game integrating its combat mechanics very well with its narrative yeah that's you know what that reminds me of it reminds me of the first Assassin's Creed game you had to yeah. research your target before you went and stopped them, as opposed to subsequent games in the series where you just stopped them. Yeah, very similar. Uh, yeah, so I, I like that. I like that narrative approach where you have to kind of learn how an enemy operates before you you go in for the kill. Um, or at least it's an intriguing thing on paper. I don't know if it's always the most interesting thing to play in practice, but on paper, at least, I think it's an intriguing approach to take. Um. Are there any other combat features that you guys want to mention that you don't really care for? Because I can think of a whole bunch. I can go on for days about <laughs> um, I've my, got my one game for pet you. peeves. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, sometimes, you know, this was more common in, in old school game design, particularly where the, the technical aspects of, uh, of programming, it wouldn't hold up. Um, but a lack of uh, visual flair... Um, and I don't mean, uh, you know, something over the top, some sort of, uh, gosh, what's a good, some sort of monster hunter world, you know, that, uh, has extraordinarily well-designed creatures and, and combat and so forth. But even something as simple as, um, making the enemies appear to react to being attacked or having your characters appear on screen in the combat section rather than a sort of Dragon Quest approach where it's a first-person perspective. Uh, having that visual flair, I think, can go a long way in making what could feel like, uh, you know, tap A to win into something that's actually pleasant or engaging to experience. Yeah, and, and to add to that... Um... 
visual flair and visual feedback draw the player's attention to certain aspects of what's going on. And so they're not only, they're not only, they're not only entertaining in and of themselves, uh, visual flair is also important for delivering information to the player. Yes. So it has both the, both sort of the, the aesthetic uh, component and the ludic component as well. Um, yeah, so games that... Are there any combat systems, like especially in older games, that you think don't have that, that visual feedback? Can oh, I think. It's the difference between a, uh, a Final Fantasy and a Dragon Quest in, in the sort of earlier days. Uh, you know, Final Fantasy has your characters on screen, the enemies on screen. Uh, your characters move when they attack, the enemies move when they attack. Uh, you know, they, they flash to indicate that they're damaged. Uh, all of that sort of that those those little aspects really go a long way in delivering uh, a more compelling user experience on the the sort of moment to moment gameplay. Yeah, for sure, I I, I can definitely see that. Um, any other flaws you guys want to mention? Because I'm going to mention a couple. If you guys don't have any more, I have one more. Ah, go for it. Final Fantasy Thirteen's combat system. Wow, you're just you're just burning just burning the ground these days uh, today, man. <laughs> the game Salt wasn't the to earth. play itself. Yeah, it's real bad. <laughs> yeah, so how, how exactly does Final Fantasy XIII's combat work? I've never confession, I've never actually played a Final Fantasy game. It uses an uh, it tries to do the after twelve, which had a very you could. Pro, pretty much program your character, your party to do what they want. It's a very basic idea. They tried to go back to the active time battle, but they want to make it more visually interesting. So it became this auto battle system where you could just, where the game would go, hey, you could use these attacks, and all you got to do is okay it. And 90% of the time, that's exactly what you have chosen. You have been like, oh, this thing's weak against fire. So I'm going to have my mate here just cast fire a bunch. So it basically became. You pressed the X button till the battle was over because it yeah. healed were damage and stuff. It played itself. Yeah, that sounds really stupid. Yeah, it was it was really cruel to see them go from one of the best RPG combat systems designed, in my opinion, in twelve to one of the least compelling ones in thirteen. And Lightning just can't catch a break, can she? <laughs> Did they ever get it right? Did like thirteen two or Lightning Returns fix it? I never made it through thirteen, so I never beat that, and I damn played the sequels because I was just like halfway through thirteen. I'm like, no, no, we're done. Screw yeah, this. same here. Yeah, it's not. I tend to persevere through games that I hate, so I'd, I'd probably have racked up like a hundred hours in that game and completed it if I if I tried, which is why I'm never going to start that game. <laughs> because I know I'll start playing it, I'm going to hate it, and I'm going to keep playing it till the end of days. Um, so yeah, that's my my burden to bear. Wait, do I even own it? I'm checking my Steam account right now. So I do not. I own Final Fantasy VII. Oh, congratulations! I should probably play that at some point. Somebody just gave it to me, um, so I should probably play that at some point. Um, and speaking of Final Fantasy games, 15 is coming to the PC this year, so I might check it out. Yeah. Yeah. How's the combat in 15? Have you guys played it? I beat it, so. 
Okay, so that means that you kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, is it Tack and Slash, Active Time Battle? How exactly did they do it? You ever play Kingdom Hearts? No, this oh. another series that has passed me by. Oh, because it plays like a more streamlined version of Kingdom Hearts to me. It's uh, hack and slashy, but you can actually choose to make it more turn-based. I enjoyed, okay. it. I enjoyed it for what it was, but after, what, 12 years in development, I didn't expect much, so I'm like, as long as it runs, I'll be as long as it's not crashing all the time. That's, <laughs> that's what I, I, I appreciate. Um, so a couple other flaws I wanted to mention that, that you find in combat systems pretty often. Um, if you've got a system that has some really stupid exploit, just sew it up, you know? Uh, so the example that I, I go to example for this is Alpha Protocol. I don't know if you guys have ever played it. Oh, I want to so bad. No. Alpha Protocol is the most fascinating bad game I've ever played. Like yeah, it's it's but... a bad game. Like no no two ways about it. It's a bad game that I want to play again. If that makes any sense. Um, so here's what you do in this game. What you do is you take out your gun, you shoot enemies till they have a sliver of health left, then you punch them in the face, which knocks them out. <laughs> and this is non-lethal, according <laughs> to the game. So yeah, you have a bunch of enemies bleeding out to death on the ground, but as long as you knock them out before they die, non-lethal is what it counts as. So yeah, you can go through the game and people tell you you're such a, a pacifist and that you don't harm other people, but in reality you're just like shooting them in the head and then punching them in the head. Wow. Yeah, Alpha Protocol is, is janky as hell. It's janky in really funny ways, but yeah. So what you're saying? Oh, I just said that that does sound right up my alley. I got to check that out. Yeah, it's it does so many unique and interesting things for a game that I wish they had. I wish they could have made a sequel to it. It's never going to happen because Alpha Protocol sold like garbage. But I hope one day somebody makes a spiritual successor to it and just irons out all the jank. Because it's kind of uh, it's kind of an interesting game for sure, and I wish that um, I wish it had the chance to, to be something better than it actually is. Um, and the other major flaw that I wanted to mention with combat systems, and I think I'm going to get a little bit of pushback on this, is um, I don't like it when they have too many different types different elements, two different potential status effects. Basically, if you add too much stuff, I'm not saying that the combat system can't be complicated, but there's a difference between adding more wrinkles or more um, more features and just adding more categories. And when you add too many categories, I think that really bothers me. So my, my go-to example for this is Pillars of Eternity, which has like 20 or 30 different status effects. I'm like, no, you need five fast status effects for an interesting combat system. You don't need, like, 20. I'm not going to remember what the 20 different status effects mean. Yeah, you don't um, want to have to be Googling how to fix something, you know, while you're playing a game. Yeah, that's always really irritating to me. Uh, when a game doesn't... When a game thinks that I hold an encyclopedia in my head. Yeah. I don't oh. know. You guys like Pillars, though. Or a lot of people really like oh. Pillars. So oh, well, you're gonna say something? 
and yeah, we talked a little bit else uh, beforehand. And so I, um, I don't. Uh, uh, to me, it's uh, not. Uh, it's not quite as bad as it is on paper because um, I think. Well, and I, I think it's probably more on the problem side is uh, some some of those uh, status effects are extraneous in the sense that they're like one status effect but worse. Uh, so um, in the the best example, uh, I, I have it pulled up, um, is that there's one status effect called frightened. And um, it, reduces your, uh, it reduces your dexterity and your ac- accuracy a little bit. Um, and so, and one thing I will say is a flaw is that's not super intuitive. Um, because some of them, some of them are more intuitive, like, uh, like confused makes you do, um, do nothing or attack your allies. Um, blinded makes it hard for you to, uh, uh hard for you to make any attacks at all. Um, uh, but then there's also, uh, um, there's also terrified, um, which, uh, which basically does the same thing, but worse. See, but that that strikes me as extraneous, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, um, pick I, one I, or the I, other. I, I mean, know? ideally, if I, I if I was, I guess, in charge of it, I would I would have just left it as the uh, just left it as the terrified one, um, because also uh, some of them. They, and I'm noticing now that I'm playing on the harder difficulty, uh, where it. Um, where it does matter more, uh, any sort of penalty can be crippling. Um, any sort of penalty can be the difference between winning and losing. Uh, but uh, I, I, I've, I've definitely found that like some of them, uh, when I play through on normal, I just didn't really bother looking them up. Um, yeah, now you have to to reference the, yeah. um, so, the manual. So what I would do is if they want to have these different like status effects or stronger versions of another, just put them, lump them all under one umbrella. Say this is frightened level one, this is frightened level two, and this is frightened level three. Yeah. And then I understand that, you know, there are different levels of fright instead of calling something frightened, something terrified. And then they're not even next to each other on the menu. So I don't make the connection that one is a hard, one is a, a worse version of the other. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the, um, uh, yep, um, the main reason, why, uh, the main reason why, uh, uh, that I say comes out, uh, um, if the flaw goes back to what we were saying earlier about, like, sort of introducing, um, uh, introducing complexity as the game goes along, uh, I will say Pillars is pretty bad at that. Um, so like, if you, uh, just, like, some of the, uh, like, the first level spells for the, um, uh, first level spells for the priest, you have the various buffs, um, status buffs and such. Um, and uh, it's not always, uh, it's not always uh, intuitive exactly when you might want to use one buff over the other. Whereas a better way of introducing something would be, okay, you, you have a you have a class that, uh, a class that's about buffing. So maybe at the first level we'll just focus on you know making uh, like uh, sort of a party uh, like buff accuracy or buff defense or just simply heal spells for a little bit and then as the game goes on make them a bit more detailed uh, make the spells more complex. Yeah, yeah. I feel like 
I feel like Pillars introduced a lot of complexity right from the get-go, and you could choose to ignore that complexity, but then you'd get into kind of a habit of ignoring that complexity, and then you arrive, you know, 10 hours down the line, and because you've been ignoring that complexity all along, you don't really know how to use it when you should learn how to use it, whereas if they'd introduced it bit by bit, then you wouldn't have had that problem. Yeah. Um, But... Again, I, I, I don't think that Pillars is, is a game that was really made for me because I didn't grow up on the 90s CRPG at all. I was too busy, you know, drowning people in Roller Coaster Tycoon. <laughs> um, so, any, are there any, is there anything else about RPG combat that you guys want to mention before we draw this podcast to a close? Oh, there, um, uh, there is, uh, and it's again one of those thoughts that it depends on a matter of degree on how much it annoys me. But, uh, uh, one thing that uh, I really dislike is essentially the computer playing by uh, the computer playing by different rules or the computer getting uh, or the computer getting a lot of stuff that uh, like that the player um, uh, the player can't get in uh, get anything like in return. Absolutely. Um, and one um, uh, one series that I um, well one series I like that doesn't really engaging that at all is uh, it's probably like one of the main reasons why I like the um uh, the Pokemon series uh because the, the computer essentially forced to have to play by the same rules as you um but uh and again this is uh where um a particular uh, a bad example uh in board rather than a general case but uh um I, I remember that uh there's one boss battle near the end of uh, um, Fire Emblem Fates' conquest path, where essentially, um, essentially you have uh, the boss is this, uh, the boss is a certain class, uh, class called a sorcerer, um, which can cast spells and such. But then he gets um, he gets a special ability called uh, like Staff Mastery, um, where he can um, where his ability to use uh, Stats is greatly increased, um, and even though sorcerers can't use stats uh, saved in the first place, and um, the main thing about saved is they can sometimes call it like status effects and such, but they only have a limited number of uses. Uh, this this skill uh, basically the boss just goes, well, I can use it an infinite number of times, and it just breaks it, breaks the whole yeah, system. Yeah, that's that's not fair at all. It's, and it's one of those like okay, I understand. Yes, this is supposed to be late game in the in the uh, in the version of the game that's meant to be super challenging. Um, <laughs> and, but it's a very very unfair and um if and again because I, I think because I'm masochistic, I'm going to try and say that um, that path on the hardest difficulty at some point. And from what I looked up, in addition to uh. In addition to being able to uh, like freeze your uh, freeze your units into place and like uh, weaken their stats, I think on the hardest difficulty, he also is able to uh, um, cut your unit's HP in uh, your maximum HP in half uh, <laughs> for the entire battle, um, and he can do that in infinite times. <laughs> and uh, if I do try this, and if I do get this far, I'm pretty sure most of my posts in the future game threads will probably just be like a single expletive and um, that's my explanation of my future posts. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see why that would be super frustrating. 
You know what game also does this to a little bit of a lesser extent? Um, and in kind of a sneaky way, Persona games do this, where it's not like you can't cast stat. It's not like you don't have any ability whatsoever to, ca- to cast status effects. It's that basically any mini boss or boss is immune to status effects, but they can set status effects on you. Yeah. So you can't like cast a confuse spell on a boss. It's useless. So all you can do when you meet bosses is essentially just damage them or maybe manipulate their attack and defense stats. That's all, those are your only yeah. strategies. And right, so guess, all the, uh, yeah, go ahead. More general case. I was thinking is just in, in general, the types of, uh, but there's also uh, the application I'm going to bring up is like just the types of this sort of status effect is very useful for the boss, but it's not so much for you. And uh, one thing that pops in my mind with uh, the Final Fantasy games is uh, um, regeneration uh, regeneration spells. Where it's okay, so it heals. Um, like you have a spell that like makes it so like for uh, for a set amount of time you'll heal like 10 percent of your health each turn. But with bosses. 10% of the health, that's like thousands and thousands of health. And for like and for player characters, and so player characters normally have to hit the boss like like hundreds of times to make them die. But then player characters which get killed by like three hits by the boss, you want ten percent of your health a turn, that's that's nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it just feels like it feels like when they stack the deck against you in that sort of way, especially when you don't have tools that the other guy has, it just feels it feels unfair in a way that doesn't need to be. Like, like again, to go back to Persona, if you're not going to let my spells have any effects, then just don't give me those spells. Because, like, you could pull them out in regular battles. Regular battles are over in, like, two turns. So there's no point in using them. And then you'd go you go to the boss and they're immune to it, then why would you give me these spells to begin with, you know? It just feels like sometimes if you're gonna give me tools, give me make sure they're actually useful and make sure that if the boss has tools and I have the same tools that I can actually use them. Otherwise it just feels like it just feels like you're mocking me as a player. Yeah. I don't really appreciate that. It's funny that um, I don't think, you know, you brought up uh, Pokemon before, but one doesn't tend to think of Pokemon as this sort of pinnacle of RPG combat. But number one, I I really do really uh, quite like it. But number two, it really does get around this problem of stacking the deck, doesn't it? It it gives the, uh, the enemies access to exactly the same abilities and tools that the player has. Yeah, and not only that, the way it generates difficulty is just by just by leveling, right? Yeah. So you can't, like, if you've got, I don't know, a level 3 Pikachu, you're not going to be able to take down a level 18 Onyx, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. just, it like, the problem isn't that I can't get those tools. The problem is I don't have those tools yet. Now, if, if I have a level 98 Raichu... Despite elemental weaknesses, um, I'm still going to be able to take down that level 18 Onyx. Yeah, so. yeah, you can overcome it through um, through perseverance or intelligent use of the tools available to you. Right, and I I wish more RPG systems would take that approach, which is why I'm super stoked for 
the Pokemon game that's eventually going to come to the Switch. Oh, you and me both. Yeah, because <laughs> I've never had like a handheld console before, so I've never... I've only played like a few hours of Pokemon here and there on like friends' consoles or in emulation, which is totally legal, I promise you. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I, I'm really psyched to, to discover Pokemon for myself outside of the really crappy anime. Um... Anything else you guys want to mention about combat systems before we call this podcast to a close? I was hoping to take us down one very quick uh, tangent here. All right, let's go down that tangent <laughs> and see what happens. Um, this particularly uh, is on my mind because, uh, funny enough, it was a question asked on the Avocados Weekly Games thread number two a few weeks ago. Um, but mini games in RPG combat systems is sort of a quirky quirky approach to designing combat in RPGs as it kind of flies in the face of uh, standard design principles for them. You know, uh, generally an RPG has the basics laid out for you and then kind of iterates upon them and, and so forth. And it's, it's inherently a genre that's more slow-paced and, uh, and, and grindy, for lack of another word, uh, than, say, something like an action game or a sports game. But every once in a while, you encounter a game that that really goes against that. And I'm thinking, say, the Mario and Luigi series, uh, virtually every combat encounter is in some way kind of a pseudo-rhythm minigame uh, or a, a QTE minigame. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, other games do this too, like Costume Quest does yes, this. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's, it's strange... Um... That you have, like, you have action RPGs on one hand that are just kind of almost pure expressions of skill. I shouldn't say that. There, there is some strategizing involved, right, in uh, how you level up your character, um, what kind of enemies you take on when, etc. But that's that's sort of on the other end of the spectrum from you know your turn-based or your strategic RPGs, where it's all in you know what commands you give to what party members when. Yeah. Um, but then there's almost like this third genre, which is like, which almost like, I guess you call it abstract combat, where you're kind of not doing either. You know what I mean? Like Costume Quest still has the turn-based element and, you know, attack selection and what have you. But the way you actually execute those commands is through QTEs or rhythm minigames, essentially. Um, I guess the, the Mario and Luigi games are, are similar? Yeah, the, it sounds pretty much the same, same thing. Yeah, that's it's an interesting. I don't know if I really like that approach, but I think I almost think of it as as kind of this is going to sound really condescending. I almost think of it as kind of like baby's first RPG. You know, like if if you know you're a kid and you're, and you're being weaned on on these kinds of games, uh, you know, learning action combat when you're eight is is really difficult, right? But like just getting him to press a button when the prompt comes up on the screen and then press it in rhythm or mash a button or, or make sure you press a button at the right time, that's not something so hard to teach to a kid, right? Yeah. So I think of games like Costume Quest, Mario Luigi, et cetera, as, as you know, RPGs for the family that they can sort of play along because they're not um, – you're kind of abstracting from, from action combat and giving them something that they can handle. And you're not um, – the way you're making it engaging is through QTEs instead of – 
the hyper strategizing of other turn-based games, which might be super complicated because, um, you know, developmental psychology shows that yeah, kids aren't very good at thinking of contingencies. Yeah, and the, the abstraction isn't there. You know, it's 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 much more, what would you say, like tactile as opposed to abstract, that approach to combat. Right. So it's it's good for, for kids on, on both ends, right? So on like three fronts. So they get the tactile feedback from, you know, the button mashing or the QTEs. They don't have to worry about like super complicated skill mastery. And, you know, kids aren't super good at thinking about contingencies far into the future. Like eight-year-olds aren't great at chess compared to, you know, (laughs) 15-year-olds. And so if you're getting them to sort of abstract, like not think and think somewhat strategically, but not like hyper strategically you're sort of easing them into into that way of thinking and then giving them something engaging to do when they're button mashing what have you so yeah i I accept that these games probably aren't made for me but i think they're it's an interesting approach to take yeah i think um i think the best way that i've seen this done so far is probably undertale oh yeah that that's that's almost like taking that that those design principles and then almost pushing them to an extreme where it's no longer accessible to children. Yeah. Um, for those of you who aren't, uh, who aren't super familiar with Undertale, basically in that game, instead of... Um, it turns defending into a sort of minigame. Uh, so, and that minigames are, are essentially like shmups or, or bullet hell games or sometimes even I don't know where it turns into two D platformers. Yeah, yeah. There's it's occasionally a platforming minigame. Yeah, so it's a uh, it's unique in, in both in both regards in that defense is something that becomes an actual active engagement rather than just um, you know press X to defend or set up guard on your previous turn. It's something that it actually engages the player in and. Um, Moreover, it's something that requires a great degree of skill. So yeah. you see this these kinds of um like I think I remember when the game grumps were streaming the the quote unquote genocide run of Undertale, I think it took them five hours to beat the final boss. Wow. And they're not bad at playing video games. I mean they play video games for a living. So yeah, that tells you the level of difficulty we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, to, to seeing that game go on to influence some some designers in the future. I I don't think many people have followed its lead yet, but it did what it did so spectacularly and in such a unique way. Yeah, I there what, the way I see it now is that there are kids right now, maybe not eight year olds, maybe like fifteen year olds who are playing Undertale. And they're going to go on in 10 years to make their own video games. Absolutely. And we're going to see that influence eventually. Um, but for now, I, Undertale was such a, was such a unique phenomenon in that like indie games, indie sensations, they never really tend, for whatever reason, tend to feed into influencing AAA games that much. So I, it's, I think it's going to be a while before we see Undertale's influence, but we're going to see it eventually. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like uh, the the folks who made Undertale were well, folks. Uh, I guess Toby Fox, right? That's the guy's name. Uh, yeah, was very influenced by Earthbound, as so many games have been over the past five to ten years. 
but that influence took a long while to be felt as well. Yeah, I mean, we still talk about, you know, Nintendo never brought over Mother 3 to the West. And um, that that's, that's so, it's so interesting to me that people want it so badly and Nintendo still hasn't given it to them. But it's, you got to remember, it's this really small niche of people yeah. that, you know, actually played Earthbound in the first place. So Nintendo's never seen it as being in their best interest. I mean, they absolutely should bring it over. It's ridiculous that they haven't. Oh. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead. I was going to say, the, um, I think the main reason why they brought over what, um, what they called Earthbound Beginnings, which was like the original, um, the original mother game, um, yeah. where they never brought um, the, uh, the original uh, one, um, in addition to having less text because there was a Nintendo or Famicom game versus a Game Boy Advance game. Um, they actually had, um, that in, um, in English version beta already existed for that. Um, with, um, with Mother 3, they would have to do, um, they, essentially they would have to, uh, have to do a translation from, from, uh, from scratch. Um, yeah, good point. So I, yeah. I have to say, I really, um, I, the, um, the fan translation for, um, for Mother 3 is, is quite good. Okay, I've got so, it sitting in my closet right now. I'm so excited to play it. I just got it for Christmas, but I haven't gotten around to it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think the they, Nintendo sometimes has has trouble kind of gauging exactly what its fans want, and maybe they maybe they know that Mother Three would not be a hot seller, but they're sitting on so much cash, they might as well do it for some goodwill, right? Yeah. The, think about how like think about how much money the Switch has made them. It's ridiculous. They're about to make a ton of money off of selling cardboard. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not even like super anti anti labor or whatever they're calling it or anything. It's just like if you're gonna make something like that, you got to make it more durable than corrugated cardboard. Like that's that's just gonna break in, in ten uses. Yeah, it's a bold choice. You got to wonder, huh? Yeah, like, I don't know. Make it out of plastic. Make it out of something that's not going to break uh, once their kids get once kids get their hands on it. This hasn't been thought through. But <laughs> we'll see. Maybe, maybe this is going to turn out to be brilliant and it's going to sell millions and millions and I'm going to eat my shirt. But We all laughed you know. at them when they introduced motion controllers for the Wii and yeah, that, that was just all of us eating crow. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I was actually super excited for the Wii. Uh, I mean, I didn't buy it because I was a teenager who couldn't buy his own consoles at the time. Uh, but I was excited by the concept. Uh, and, you know, now that I've played games with motion controls, I, I generally don't like motion controls. Um, but I think I still think the concept is, is worth exploring, at least to some degree. So that's that. Anything else you guys want to mention before we call this to a close? I will take your silence as indication <laughs> that we have nothing more to talk about and we could literally not say another word. Yeah, I think we've we've pretty much um pretty much exhausted all there is to say about RPG combat. Yeah, literally everything. <laughs> we've talked about every single RPG under the sun. Um, I, I, I think I think we've reached a good point for uh, for um, for the podcast, uh, provided that we don't want to have uh, 
session. <laughs> I mean, we could start talking about like super janky games like Risen and Gothic and Elax. Oh, nobody uh, needs to hear about them. <laughs> Eastern European jank, man. It's it's out there. Um, but thank you guys for for joining me, Pulp Robot, Singing Breakman, Lord Stoneheart. You guys have been great. Um, and for our listeners, if you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, we have a website avocadogamescast.wordpress.com We post every episode. We also post a link dump that fact checks what we say on here because sometimes we say things that are wrong. I say lots of things that are wrong. Um, I can't help it. I'm an inveterate uh, liar. (laughs) I'm basically the Sean Murray of podcasting. Um, You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play Music. Just search for Avocado Gamescast. And... We wouldn't be here if it were it not for the Avocado, the community that spawned this wonderful podcast. And you can go check out the Avocado at the-avocado.org. It's an actual hyphen. Don't type the word hyphen. That would be really stupid. <laughs> All right. It sounds like we've had a good podcast. Anything else you guys want to say before we hang up? Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for having us. Bye, guys. Bye.